You can't be serious, man. You cannot be serious! I think he recognised who that might have been because he's a sports devotee, amongst other things, amongst being a captain of industry and a star in the Australian landscape. He probably recognised that that was John McEnroe saying, you cannot be serious, when he was defaulted in Wimbledon for shouting at an umpire. So that's the name of our, um, our, our podcast called You Cannot Be Serious. And he's the man that uh, we got the inspiration from. So uh, before I just say who we're speaking to... Uh, this man is, uh, as with a lot of people we uh, interview here, or, or most of them, they have an extensive uh, history of uh, achievement. Uh, some of them don't, some of them just here because they've done one thing in their life and we like to speak to them about it, but this man is, uh, is I think the word is ubiquitous, I think that's the word, um, and he is a star. I, I don't know him that well, but I've uh, met him a few times. And he's a great friend of Sue Stanley's OAM because while he's not an OAM, he is an AO, which is the next step up from an OAM. Um, uh, they are in the sports industry and the institutions together. He's run the biggest companies in the world. He's been rubbed shoulders with the Formula One drivers for various reasons. He's been part of uh, Sport Australia in a whole... Not a whole different capacity because his main vocation, and he was a star at it, was cycling. And uh, to that end, he um, he won a gold medal at the Empire Games, which actually is the Commonwealth Games, in 1962. He's won 16 Victorian Championships in uh, uh, cycling and seven national championships. Uh, that is about one... 50th of the stuff that's available for information on our guest uh, and we welcome him to you cannot be serious the great peter bartels morning welcome thank you the reason peter that i i wanted to interview you maybe a year ago or nine months ago and we trawl through the people that we can ask and um, and what made me think of you again is I was sitting with Sue Stanley and we saw number one number plate in New South Wales was up for auction and it got to $10 million and I thought, I know the man that's got number one in Victoria. And I thought, why don't we get him on to speak just as a pretense to get him in to speak to about that and then a whole lot of other things that I'm sure people would be interested in. And I know you have number one. Uh, the obvious question is, Peter... How did you get number one number plate? Because the way it's going, it's going to be worth 15 or $20 million soon. Uh, it's an interesting story. It really, it came about as a friend I think we all know, a fellow called Michael Pratt. I'm sure you know Michael. Yep. Michael rang me one day in about 19, I think 1985 or thereabouts. I was running the brewery, Carlton United Breweries. Michael rang me up and said, I've got a client who needs to, he's got a number plate number one. He needs to sell it today for financial reasons, and he wants cash. Do you want to buy it? I said, yes. Have you got the money, or do you need me to get you the cash? 
He said, no, I can settle it, basically, all right. And I said, only just one proviso, make sure he actually owns it before we pay for it. Yep. So do whatever diligence, due diligence you need to do to make sure that we've got it. So he did it, and so the number plate changed hands. And Michael said, well, I've got five people on my pad to ring. Michael and I are old friends. And so he said, I'm, you're, you're, you're first on the list. So you've got five minutes to make up your mind. So I don't need five minutes. I don't want to intrude into your personal life, Peter, but you're going to have to tell us what you bought it for. It was it cost eight, I think it was eighty either eighty three or eighty five thousand dollars. Eighty five thousand dollars for number one. Correct. <laughs> That's extraordinary. And just uh, did you was there a car involved in it as well? Or no, not? there wasn't a car. No? So what? So I bought just the plates. The number plate. Yeah, but I had an idea about the car. I was running the brewery. The number one brand in the brewery was Victoria Bitter. So here was a number plate Vic One. Oh, wow. So I rang. Um, I rang Holden Special Vehicles, the dealers basically, and said, you know, like a Holden Special Vehicle painted in Victoria Bitter colours yep. with the seat, back of the seats covered with the VB badge. Would they do that? And Yeah, of course they made it. They, 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 they did. And so I'm going to put Vic One on it basically. Yep. My idea was then I, when I, we got the car, the car was made, a fellow called Michael Padden, whom you might know, was the dealer who supplied it. And uh, John Crennan was running, hold, yes, running Holden yep, Special Vehicles. Yeah, I know, those John days. Crennan. Yep. So John obliged to do the paintwork, and it's in his book. He's written a book about Vic One. So what happened with Vic One, then I decided what I would do, we got the car. So then, firstly, we gave it to representatives, the reps out in the road, killing all the publicans. So the guy that topped his sales orders for the month or the week or whatever it was, we give him Vic One to drive for a week really? or two weeks. So and it rolled. wasn't in your possession then? You'd no, no, I, no I owned it and I leased it back yes. to the company because yep, yep. it needed the company. You've got to own the registration yep. on the company. So then we put it out. The salesman used it. They'd go and visit their publicans. Everybody would gather around, take yep. a photo of the publican with car and the, the employee. So then when we finished the run of all the salesmen that had it, they'd entertained their friends and used the car for a while. We then gave it to the publicans. So if a publican had exceeded his thing, we put it on the back of a truck, deliver it to him, give it to him for a month to drive in his what local town. Extraordinarily extraordinary marketing coup that is, because no one when they see Vic One, they would think that's just a hybrid thing that you'd put on the front of your car just to for advertising, but that is the real deal. Well, remember, remember at that time we were highly creative. I was running the brewery. Uh, John Elliott was the chairman. No, we'll get on to that. Don't worry about <laughs> that, Peter. So at that time we'd launched Foster's. we just launched yep. Foster's, which was an unknown brand, hardly ever sold in Australia. It was an export brand. And we decided that we would take... We wanted a brand because in 1984-5, all the brewery band, all the beer that was sold around Australia was sold by Territory... In Queensland, it was 4X. In New South Wales, it was Tuis and Tooths. In Victoria, yep. it was Victoria Bitter, Melbourne Bitter and Abbott's Lager. Courage? No, Courage. No, Courage had been and gone by that time. Yeah. yeah. So, so South Australia, it was West End. And in Western Australia, it was Swan. 80% of beer that was sold was sold in bulk. People drank at hotels. 20% of beer was packaged in those days. A very significant market. We decided our market research showed us that packaged beer was going to be large. So we introduced Crown Lager first yep. in a fluted glass, which we gave to people to yes. try and elevate drinking. Yep. And Crown Lager went, started to go interstate. We then bought the brewery in Northern Territory, 
in Darwin, basically, and we had Carlton Draft going up on that brand. And then we progressively started to look at how we could market another brand in Australia to bounce beer around. The market research showed that the market would change from bulk beer to packaged beer and that that would happen rather quickly. So when we looked at we thought if we were going to launch a brand, we needed to get young Australians to launch it because old tried drinkers would want the beverage they'd had forever, basically. So again, we did our market research and found that the territorial bounds of the brands in Australia didn't go overseas. When young Australians went overseas on their rucksack, they didn't have a state emblem on it. They had a BAMP of Australia. So they're all congregated in Earl's Court. So we launched Fosters in England in Earl's Court, basically. Just the big F. Just to actually go in to get these, yep. get these young Australians. And when they came back to Australia, they then wanted, when they settled back, they wanted to celebrate the times they had in London. They started looking for packaged beer Fosters and they bounced the ground around the whole of Australia. Uh, Peter, this is uh, you covered 50 questions I was going to ask you. What uh, do you admit, This is the easiest chat I could ever have to someone because that is fascinating stuff, but uh, where I've just... Uh, so There's one extra leg to that. Oh, so, so that's when we decided that we would... Um, if we were going to do it... I've been watching on television at that time with the Peter Stuyvesant sets, yep. and they used to have a guy in a gondola rowing a boat saying, famous all around the world yep. was their strategy. So we decided, okay, well, we'll make Foster's a world brand. So we then decided to do that. We have to own most of the major sporting aspects in Australia. Yeah, no, okay. So yeah. we started with the Foster's Melbourne Cup. Yeah, it had never been sponsored. And we'd, we had been doing quite a lot of work in England. We persuaded Charles and Diana to present the first Foster's Melbourne Cup. Did you? Lloyd Williams won it. Yeah, with a horse called What a Nuisance, yes, basically. Right. We've had Lloyd in here. He was fascinating too. And Wish so, about and that, so we, then, we then did the football and we did pretty much anything you could buy in Australia. And then probably the most prestigious sport around the world, although if they could get the cars to race one another, that would be good. But Formula One, yeah. you, uh, you, you, you monopolised that. Well, for Formula One was easy. We wanted, to, we wanted to go to the British market. Because they, you know, they huge lager drinking louts basically in England. They weren't; they were drinking bitter. But there looked to be a huge opportunity to sell beer in England. So I decided at that time Formula One in 1985 or four, five, or six was only um, on the BBC were the only televisors of it. Uh, Hunt was the um, yep. he was the main James. commentator basically. Yep. James was the main commentator. So we decided, okay, we'd have to actually attack the English market. We needed from Adelaide. Pro- no, no, from no, from but Adelaide Formula One was no, no. This is still going, starting right at the start, back in eighty five. We Did decided we wanted to do England. I see. So we actually got the brand. We decided we would use Formula One to, to go into the English market. So we in what year? Oh, it'd be not in eighty five or eighty six. Well, wasn't the first Grand Prix in Australia in Adelaide? No, yeah, it was, but yeah, much later at, at the back end of eighty five. No, it was the last. It was later. It was yeah. yeah not but it might have been eighty three. It might have been early. My, my, oh, really, my yeah. time might be early. So we started in Europe, and what we did in Europe, then we decided that the way to do it would be to talk to the Formula One teams, basically, yes, and see if we could coerce them to put our brand into their trucks because all the teams are located yeah. in England. So we did the rounds of the teams and I became very friendly with Ron Dennis of McLaren. Yes. He started the ball rolling. He became one of my very close friends. We put Foster's beer into it and then they took it on their trucks and 
when they opened up their spreads and all the photographers around the world started to look what Ayrton Senna and all sorts of yep. people were drinking, Foster's popped up. And then we took, I saw Bernie Eccleston and decided we'd take a package in Formula One. And we took, I think it cost us $10 million when we interested it. That, that pretty big, oh, and is that in the 80s? No. Well, it might have been early 80s anyway, yeah. I can't remember. Pretty big thing. package, 80, uh, 10 million? Oh, well. And then? It was um, a big brand. We had a big brand in Australia. What was, it at the, what was it at, when did you get out of Formula One advertising? Well, so we went into Formula One. It's an, quite an interesting story with Formula One. I always bought, I had an unusual rule about buying advertising. I always bought target audience rating points, which is really what advertising people yes. sell you. They very seldom deliver what they sell you because most television companies or advertising companies sell on television anyway. They sell about 120% of prime time and then they give you make-ups for the 20% yep. that they can't deliver because they've overbooked. And most people accept the make-ups. Yep. I always audited my advertising and if they didn't run it when they said they were going to run it, I actually asked for a check back. Kerry Packer's an old friend of mine. Who Ker was? Kerry Packer. Yes, I'm oh, sorry. Because he was running the television yep. in Australia at that time. He tells me I'm the only person ever that ever asked for my money back Fantastic. in those particular advertisements. So when I did Formula One with Bernie Eccleston, I said he gave me an offer for a price, I can't remember now, probably $10 million or something. And I said, okay, I only buy all target audience rating points. If you deliver that, I'll pay you. If you deliver more, I'm happy to pay you more. If you deliver less, I'm going to pay you less. And so... Were you a tough little man? Did you... Bernie delivered it. He gave us spreads of what we wanted. So all the other teams then wanted Fosters because McLaren had it and they were the leading team. So we put it in all the trucks, basically, and then that seeded the European market for us. Everybody wanted it in Europe. So that bounced the brand. We got the brand back in England because we had plastered the, the sides of the tracks with Fosters. So the BBC, we're getting free advertising on BBC because they're advertising all of the tracks. So, so at the end of the Foster's um, uh, promotion for Formula One, and I see Heineken are doing it now, what, what would it cost today to have the world... Uh, world 20 uh, or 30 exposure. million. Uh, 330 million. 20, 20 or 30 million, perhaps, perhaps uh, more. Uh, 30 million. Yeah, probably. Yeah, it's not 330 million. No, 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 20 or 30 million. It, to, to put it all around the 24 the expensive. tracks. Red Bull followed us. The Red Bull owner is an old friend of mine. He died recently. But Red Bull, the Red Bull story... Oh, that's in, that was an essence that they he sold the essence to make that Red Bull into an aerated drink, didn't yeah, he? Yeah, he had a partner. But he modelled his whole marketing plan on the Foster's plan. Did he? Because he said, you blokes have done a brilliant job. I'm going to actually follow the same pattern of it which is what he did. So he plastered Red Bull on motorsport, he plastered it on aeroplanes, he plastered everything. He did exactly what we did with Foster's. How big is Red... Is Red... Did he be the largest he, beverage. Didn't he invent just an essence like... No, no, he had, he had a partner. He bought it from, a, I think, a Thai fellow, a Thai yeah. owner, invented the essence. Yes. And he sold it to Maestrick, who actually decided that he could market it based on what he'd seen happen with Formula. That would be a... How many billion dollar oh, industries? That is extraordinary. It's huge. Uh, There's another part of the Foster story. I'm probably getting ahead of The other part was the American market. At the same time we'd done England, we decided we wanted to go to America. 
And that, the reason we wanted to go to America, as you remember, we had a 26-ounce can of beer that we used to make. Yep. And that's that that steel or aluminium? It was steel in those yeah, days. Yeah, you, you you, you're the first person to brew or put beer into a steel can. Correct. People used to stand on them at the football that's so it. they could see the... Cr- that's it. So, in the outer. so we had a disadvantage and an advantage. The biggest problem about running a brewery is half of the cost of your product is tax that you've paid, basically. So you make the beer in your brewery, you put it into a bond store, and the day you send it to the customer out, whether it's in Australia or anywhere, you actually pay the government tax. 50% of what's in that can goes in tax, approximately. So we had this major problem. We had a huge tax bill. We were making plenty of product. We had this 26-ounce can. About that time was when Bob Hawke came into power and we had all the wharf strikes in Australia. And Australia was just going towards getting its goods in containers. And the container ports were full of containers that had arrived, goods we imported, but we didn't have much that we exported back out of Australia in containers because we mostly did bulk goods. So we discovered that if we could buy these containers to go anywhere in the world literally for nothing because they needed to get them back into their base. So we looked at the American market and decided Paul Hogan was on the scene. He'd been doing the Paul Hogan ads about, you know, throw a shrimp on the barbie or something. So So we decided we'd enter the American market because we could get... Firstly, the containers were here. We could get the shipping back to America for almost nothing because they wanted to get the containers back, so they would take a small impost from us to ship them back. If we shipped the the product straight from our warehouse to the wharf, we didn't have to pay tax, so we saved the tax. So we entered into the American market and we went to all of our suppliers and said, we're going to supply the American market. The problem with the Australian beer market is it only has one peak, Christmas. Summer and Christmas hit at the same time. The rest of the world, the brewers get summer yeah. and they get and Christmas in the winter. Yeah. And they're opposite things, so they get two peaks for their brewery. Wow. So we had our breweries lying idle during this, the winter period. Yeah, so we actually used the winter to seed markets overseas so we could actually get 100% of production. I hope when you left Foster's they gave you the biggest payout of anyone uh, ever known because that is genius stuff there, what you're saying. That's, uh, you know, to ha- be across all that and... Uh, the genius was, you know, Hogan was getting his traps and he was about to do Crocodile Dundee. Oh. Yep. So John Elliott and I were major sponsors of Crocodile Dundee when they... Were when they when he put his show to the road, basically. And so we decided we would use Hogan to do our ads. We'd used him in England to do our ads, and when we used him in America, so he led our campaign when we did the American. So we captured the American beer market, the imported beer market, because we had three things. One, we didn't have to pay tax. Two, we got the freight for nothing to get it there. Three, when we landed it, it got a premium over the local beers because it was imported at 15% in that market. So you gave Mr Hogan a decent stipend to do this? Interesting. We had when, we were, when he was making his film was when we were launching this campaign. The board of, um, the board of whoever we were at the time, Fosters or Elders, uh, were really concerned. They said to me, Peter, you know, we're really worried. Have you got a contract with Hogan? And I said, no. And they said, well, you know, aren't you worried? This bloke might go and get another beer branded or whatever. And I said, well, he might, but I doubt whether he'll sign anything anyway, but he might, I'll ask him. So he was making his film all around the world. Yep. We put a lawyer from Coors in major 
firm in Melbourne to chase them around the world to try and get them to sign a contract. It took ages. Anyway, eventually, Strop rang me up one day. As yeah, you know, John Strop Cornell, yeah. He was uh, Hogan's manager. He yep. rang me up one day and said, Peter, Hogs said, you're driving him mad wanting a contract. But anyway, he's done it. So I want to come down and go through it with you. So I said, well, what do you want to go through with me if he signed it? And he said, oh, we got a few questions we want to ask you. So anyway, one day Strop arrives with Delveen. So you, you, oh. had given him, you had given him the amount that you were going to pay him? Yeah, yeah, it was sort uh, of like Yes, no, you, and then Strop said, uh, John Cornell said, well, you've given us the figure, but we'd like to come and chat to you yeah, a little and, extra. Yeah, and we, wanna, we just yep. want to have a look Top at it. And so and so mm. Strop arrived with their secret weapon, Delveen, yeah, Delveen yeah. almost wearing something. <laughs> <laughs> and, and Strop... But we had this contract. By this time, the contract's about an inch and a half thick by the time the lawyers had got to it, put all, the, all yeah. the things we needed. So anyway, we went through the first page and Strop had about 10 questions. After we'd done about 20 pages, I'd answered, I reckon, about 100 questions. And I said to Strop, shit, for blokes that didn't want a contract, you fellas, Strop was super smart. Yeah. For blokes that didn't want a contract, you blokes are looking pretty smart. So he chucked the contract across the table and he said, Hug said you'd have all the answers, so he signed it anyway. Fan- oh. And, and, uh, and in the back of the contract, now in the back of the contract, Hug wrote, Peter, I've signed this contract in good faith, but when I don't feel like being funny for you any longer, I wonder what you'll do. Fantastic. Are, are you allowed, you. Peter, to say what the contractual arrangement no, was? No, I couldn't say Fiscally? That. It, was, it, was, it, was, it was... It was... Reasonable. It was no, it was, it was no, no, no. It was more than fair. We we were generous. We were actually. John Elliott had a wonderful trait. John had been pillared by a lot of people. Yeah, pillar. Yeah, but, yeah. But, but one, he was a he was an adventurer, and he was courageous. And so the things that I've just been explaining to you were quite courageous in the brewing empire. They were quite courageous in business. We'd already bought and sold three or four companies by then. So it was pretty easy. So, so you got on with John. Well, he was pretty sharp, wasn't he, John? John was good. Tricky. John was excellent to work with. Very right. close friend. He, was he? Yeah, we had him in here. and Very close he, friend. He, he, he said, we had him in here last year, I think, before he, oh, before he died, of course. And um, I, I drove him home. I picked him up and drove him home. And he said, oh, we get to uh, Ligon Street. He said, can you just pull in here? And I said, Denise? <coughs> One is that a wine store? store? That, was it Danini's? One of them. Is that a wine the, store? No. Anyhow, he no. said, oh, I, got, I said, well, he said, next to this, and I said, yeah, that's a wine store. He said, yes. He said, go in and say it's John Elliott in the car. So I go in, I said, i am got John Elliott in the car, and the bloke pulled a bottle of, fucking, I don't know what it was, scotch or whatever he drank. And I said, how much? And he said, oh, it goes on his account. Oh, no, the bloke didn't say it. The bloke said, it goes on his account. I said, no, I'll buy it. Cause it's so I came out and he, that's all he wanted, a bottle of scotch or whatever. So he was gave that a nice touch up. But he was fantastic. But he was, um, I'm glad you got on well with him because I wasn't sure about that. Cause he no, he's head of his time. He was actually wonderful here. He, you know, he founded the thing. He assembled a team of people, Peter Scanlon, Jeff Lord, Tim yes. Jarrett. And um, he was a... Fearless leader. We had a wonderful chairman, a fellow called Sir Ian McLennan, who was the chairman of BHP. And he was about the only person I knew that could actually get John to settle down and focus on... So those three, four, five people you mentioned then, 
was there some controversy over any of them about some of the things, not that they did at the brewery? I, I, they seemed to get, uh, they seemed to have some problems, didn't they, in other ventures they did? Anyhow, that's no, no, not really. No, no, not really. No. They were all successful in different yep, ways. They were. You will know better than anybody. Success breeds contempt. Yep. And so. When you've been successful, it appears to me, and an old, there's an old man talking, people revere and hang on to your coattails for the success and they want to embellish it until they don't. And then occasionally jealousy takes over from embellishment. I'm very... And, and so tall poppies grow, they grow strongly in sunlight, they get cut down in darkness. I, I was just... Uh, this reminded me of a great... I didn't make this up, so I'm not. Pla- I'm plagiarising it. It said that someone said, "Never worry about the haters; they're only angry at the truth you speak because it contradicts the lies they live." They're the aftermath. Yes, they're not the beginning. No, and they're not the end, because if the beginning is significant, we always used to sit around a table and say, "Okay, we're going to upset a few people." When we did the one of the grand finals, we pulled the whole flag out across the MCG. You might yeah, remember, I do. Flag of Australia, yep, basically, yep. nobody had ever done it, and um, we took a lot of criticism. Neil Mitchell gave us hell for a period of time over it. It passed, didn't did our sales basically. In Canada, we did similar things. As we bought breweries around the world, we bought the major breweries in Canada, the two of them. So we owned the Nordiques, which is the major hockey team in, yep. in, in yep. Canada. We won the Stanley Cup several times with them. And we owned the Blue Jones, the major Canadian uh, football team. So, so we, did a lot, we did a lot of things that were forward thinking yep. and we took some flack for it. So you mentioned people who advertised for you, uh, Hogan and... Yep. I think Barry Humphreys, did Barry Humphreys... He did some stuff in London. Some stuff? Yeah. And Barry McKenzie... Barry McKenzie, he loved it. He was good. Only thing was keeping him up in clothes. He kept ripping stuff down. Barry yeah, that's right. Uh, So, uh, now you're... And we were, at that stage, if if you were to do your history, you'll find we were pretty much, for most of our career, ahead of the pack... We were ahead of the pack when we bought, when we originally started, we bought the Elders IXL. Uh, yeah, the jam, fact, the jam factory, jam factory. in effect. Yeah. So we built the jam factory, we refurbished the jam factory. When, when we did the jam factory, Chapel Street was dying. It's declining yeah. again a bit now. Still I think is, they're going yeah. to refurbish it, basically. Uh, um, Peter, you, so you started off... Carlton and United Breweries, and then you developed Fosters. Is Correct. that right? Correct. Fosters was that that came first. Correct. Cub, and then you wanted to fosterise the world. Well, I'm a publican son. It was easy. when we bought oh, Fosters. Yeah. When we bought Fosters, we yeah. were sitting around the table between that group of people, and I was the only one that knew anything about beer. I was born in a pub. My parents owned the Mountain View Hotel in Glen Waverley, and the then they owned a string of sort of country pubs. The Mountain View that mm. was Ron's. Wasn't it? Isn't the Mountain View the Ron Bressy's? No, like Mountain View in Glen Waverley. Yeah, but there was a Mountain View. No, he didn't. Ron didn't ever had that. No, not in Glen Waverley. Mm. Isn't there a Mountain View in hotel? Richmond? I think. Yes, there might be one. it's called the Mountain View. I think. Correct. Uh, now you. S- we were talking about here, which uh, we were talking about in an earlier episode, episode two, about water, and um, you know, California want to turn sewage into water, and. Um, It'll be okay. And you... What? It'll be okay. 
Oh, well, let me ask you the question. If you had a Foster's now, would you be putting sewage water into making your beer? Because you said you, said you owned, it says here. You could. You owned a, a company called Rolling Rock. Yeah, that's right. And you Mountain were, water, town water. Y- yes, that's right. Correct. So don't tell me it, it's the water would be all right well, that you'd, it, you'd it, make Foster's well, out the of uh, it, re, it, reconstituted water out of sewage. Well, the interesting thing is that when you actually um, <laughs> when you take the water to make your beer, you actually strip it of everything that yep. was in it when you got it, yep. other than liquid. Yep. And then you re-add back into it uh, of the course, mineral base Peter. and all the things you need to do and actually to get its flavour enhancements yes. and the things that it needs. So I don't know today. I'm not close enough to the technology, technology, but it is quite possible. It's not the point, though, Peter. No, it's quite possible if they strip that stuff out yep. that you could end up with a liquid that was absolutely inert that would cause no particular problems. Of I don't course. know the answer. Can you imagine the competitors, Corona, absolutely saying Fosters Ab- made out of sewage? Absolutely, I could. You wouldn't do it. You couldn't. I take watched the a risk. fantastic thing on how Corona maintains its flavour, and they have a a plant no bigger than your little fingernail, and they take a minute genus off off it every time they want to make a a um, a run of beer, and they they what do you call it? They Ferment it? No, no, they grow it. They, they grow it to f- That's yeast. They put it in. It's yeast, but they... Uh, oh, I can't think Plant of it. it. Yeah, but they develop it in the uh, micro... Make uh, it grow. Test tube. Like an embryonic. Please. Yes, an embryo. And someone said, gee, the, the plant's only as big as your fingernail. I said, that'll last for 500 years. We just so, put so a pinprick in it and then they develop the flavour of the pinprick. Sounds fictitious, nevertheless. Does it? It's partly right. Oh, the part that's right is that the, the, the flavour of beer is in yeast comes from yeast. Yes. If you ever brew ginger beer at home or yes. whatever it is, you have no, a yeast yeah. plant. With the yeast plant, mm. you can brew your own ginger beer. So Carlton United Breweries are using yeast that's probably about 150 years old, and they they guard this stuff like gold. That's right. Because it's the base thing that you put into the fermentation well, process that's to start. Vaguely the yeast. what I'm talking about. In fact, place. exactly, Carlton did during the war. The um, breweries in Denmark, Carlsberg and Tilburg, lost their yeast, got disturbed, and Carlton United Breweries provided the seed base for those Danish beers to resuscitate themselves. So that's vaguely sort of right. That's that's the story. I know quite a lot about Corona. We tried to buy Corona. I went there and had long, serious negotiations. The thing that gives Corona its flavour is the bit of lemon they put that's in the That's right. Top. No, that, that's... Uh, the, the, I only remember the... the but that's the, true. The little thing they, they bought that's it out of... That's true of all beer, though. Basically, all yeah. beers start from a yeast Good. plant. They bought it out of a little safe and it that's was it. guarded and the that's it. security guards came and they made a big product. Uh, and they, they are the... Are they the biggest packaged beer in the, at the minute, are they? In, Ma- in Mexico, they're big. It's owned by Anheuser-Busch. Yes. They were bought by Anheuser-Busch. Jesus, uh, how many questions can I... That's uh, just a fascinating... Now, so well, I'm getting on to your cycling in a minute because you no, started at that and you started off at Abbott's as a chemist or a pharmacist or a, that was your early days. I was yeah. a rep. I wasn't anything yeah. smart. No, no, oh, no, I can tell you're not smart. Uh, uh, you went to South Africa. For I did. For when we bought, when we bought, when I, I, I was just two steps. 
I got a job as a rep. I'd won a gold medal in the Commonwealth Games in Perth. 62? 1962. Mm. The year before... I, the I'll get you on to the Commonwealth Games. No, I'm, I've got to start this... No, oh, don't worry, we'll probably. speak about the so, Commonwealth Games. For cycling, in 1960, I expected to win two gold medals at the Rome Olympics. Dead said certain. I'd been racing in Europe, been winning all the events. I was going to ride the time trial and the sprint, basically, in the Olympic Games. Just one flaw happened. In the selection races in Adelaide for the Olympic team, I fell over, broke my wrist and couldn't make the team, basically, so I didn't go to the Olympics. That's on the velodrome? No, not on the velodrome. No, out in the road? Big old flat track, on a track. Oh, yes. Big track. Anyway, so I broke my wrist, so I missed going to the Olympics. I missed, I think, an opportunity. You could have stood on the dice with Herb. You never quite know. You never quite know, but you know when you're at least in the frame. Yep. So I was in the frame, so... The next year I married my wife, Marilyn, who subsequently died, because we were going to go back to Europe and sort of live as a cycle professionally. So I was getting ready to do that in 1961. My father died, he was 47, and he left his hotel estate to me, which was complicated. I had a business to run, basically, several hotels. 1962 Commonwealth Games were coming up. So I did, and he was disappointed, of course, that I didn't win the Olympics. So I decided I'd go to the Commonwealth Games and I was only going to win a medal. It didn't occur to me that I wouldn't and that's all I was going to do. So I actually went, got my medal and I stopped that night and never raced again. Didn't you? And in 60, you, you were probably the favourite to win a gold with a long... Well, you Herb ne- Elliott won it, didn't you? Nev- you never know, you never know. You no, know, you never know. You know if you're in the first few in the world at the time that you've got a chance, basically. I was going to mention your dear departed wife who you lost a couple of years ago, Two. I think, Marilyn, and she would have gone... Th- had lived she your went life. The, she went to the Olympics. She would have lived your life, uh, lived, lived with Correct. you, all the things we're talking Correct. about, and I... Well, of course, we. I hope you're getting on okay. Life no, no, goes on, doesn't it? Yeah, life yeah, goes on. Yeah. Uh, so, Peter, uh, I, uh, Michael Pratt gave you this name. Uh, Gerd Kramer. Kramer. Yeah, Gerd Kramer said he, he asked Peter about Gerd Kramer. He has a fantastic story about delivering the Mercedes people to the Formula One. I'm not sure what Gerd Kramer did, but how do you know him? Gerd was the. He was Mr. Mercedes Benz in Europe. He dealt with all the promotional marketing for Mercedes-Benz for the head office, basically. And so for all the Formula One drivers, his job was to woo them, make sure they all drove Mercedes, go to all the events, look after things. Mercedes had a major accident at Le Mans several years ago. Their cars crashed and they stopped racing Mercedes for a long period of time. Yep. They didn't come back into the market. But anyway, Gert was Mr Mercedes, so he knew everybody in the world, most of the major sports people. He had this wonderful job and he was a friend of Alan Jones. He knew Alan Jones very yep. well. Michael Pratt was heavily associated with Alan Jones. And you knew a lot of the form. You knew Senna and Schumacher. So, so as a result of uh, Gert, Gert introduced me to Ron Dennis... Ron Dennis introduced me to, to uh, Aiton Centre. I was the man in the paddock with the biggest checkbook because Foster's was writing all the stories, so everybody wants to know you when you're doing that. But out of it came some very, very solid friendships, one with Ron, one with Gerd, one with Ayrton, uh, one with uh, Berger, Gerhard Berger, and all of those drivers at the time because they're living in a circus You see them at the events. I went to most of the events and I had a wonderful time. Gert was the introducer. He he knew everybody in the world. 
It's almost a contradiction in terms of the Formula One circus and caravan. I get up, and so does Ivan. Oh, I call him Ivan. I get up in the middle of the night to watch it. Why I get up, I don't know, because there's certain people have ruined it. Um, Stappen's ruined it, and then I think Schumacher did at one stage, and then uh, uh, Vettel ruined it. No one ever races one another. Like they do down the back, can they jig it up? They've lost, I think they've lost some of the personalities, starting with uh, Schumacher. Schumacher's quite, Michael's quite a, quite a, was quite a close friend of mine. He used to stay with us when he was here. He's been to Portsea a lot. He used, to, he used to love going and swimming with the dolphins. Did he? In Port Phillip Bay. What, <laughs> do you keep into, what, what no. are they possibly keeping Michael Schumacher? I don't know. I don't know. I don't, I don't see Karina. I haven't seen Karina. I haven't it interrupted with him. But I went to. I flew with Michael quite a few times to various events. He was a wonderful person. Good man. He loved coming to Australia. He used to like going to. I think it's Port Lincoln. Going yep. in that cage diving yeah, with the, the sharks. sharks. Yep. He loved doing those things. He was an adventurer, but he was a very close friend. Gert Kramer discovered him. This fellow Gert Kramer we were talking about, and he introduced him to a fellow called Willie Weber, who was his manager for a long period of time. So I know quite a lot about Formula One. And the great here's here's a here's a, here's a mental block. The James Hunt rivalry with um, Murray Walker. No German driver. <laughs> Fancy he just died not long ago. Nicky Lauda. Nicky Lauda. <laughs> Why couldn't I think of a great film called Rush? Yeah, about those two. Actually, people. the person that comes to Melbourne a lot, you worth interviewing one time is a fellow called John Watson. John Watson drove for McLaren oh, once. I remember, from know the, the name. He actually pulled the ladder out of the car. Did he? He was the first car that stopped and uh, plucked him. Basically, that particular a day. great film. That was well, a great well acted film. by the bloke who played Louder and uh, yeah. Lee, um, the, the, you know, the big... Louder used to come here. Louder, Louder, Louder came to Melbourne you know quite him. a lot when we ran the Grand Prix. Yep. Well, they used to all come... By, when they were here, they would come to helicopter at Borchi, come down and spend... After they'd finished practice on the Saturday, they'd generally come down for a barbecue. Well, it's stuff. extraordinary. Um, now, so we... The, the cycling, your... your, your um, you're revered around the world. You're on the, you're on all the commissions and boards, or you were. You well, were. I, yeah, I had a lot to do with it. There were two bodies running cycling. There was the, there was a, a professional body and an amateur body. The professional body was going broke because the amateur body was financed out of the Olympic proceeds, and so we, I, I, I was instrumental in merging the two bodies, the professionals and the amateurs, into what's now called the Union Cyclist International, and I sat for a long. Is that period. French? Uh, yeah, French. Yeah, Union. I saw that. Was pronounced. UCI. Yeah, that's right. And so I was instrumental along with a fellow called Ray Godkin in Australia in merging the two bodies. He became the treasurer and then I sat on the board for quite some years. So I've been a member of the International Federation for quite a long period well, of time. It says you're in your uh, bio. It says you're linked, you linked sport, government and the private sector to the benefit of the sporting community. You are... You overreached all those uh, Well, I got the job of, of running... Uh, John Howard appointed me to run the Australian Sports Commission, which also had the Australian Institute of Sport. So I had a lot to do with convincing the government... In 92, work. you joined the Australian Sports no, Commission. No, it would have been earlier than that. A lot okay. earlier than that. I can't so remember when. But I had a lot right. to do with in convincing Howard and others to actually do the Olympics in Sydney. That's right. That's it. That was the next thing it said here. Uh, and I'm going to ask you this. So, Chogham. 
which I think is the Commonwealth Heads of Government yes, uh, in Melbourne. Is it M Melbourne? No, no, no. no. M is Chogham what? is the Commonwealth Heads of Government sport. Yeah, they meet around the world. The King goes, or the Queen, yep. used to be the Queen. Yep. And I was the head of sport for the Commonwealth. So here we are, the Commonwealth Games. Great uh, feeder, feeder uh, competition to the Olympics and aspiring athletes. And what happens? And I'm not going to get you to make a political statement. I make enough of them. Of the clowns, the absolute morons, corrupt and Ill- people who run this state can just uh, win an election on saying, oh, yes, we'll build stadiums all around Victoria and vote for us. And then uh, when they get the votes and get in, they pull the plug on it. It is a disgrace. Not that they can't afford it, that they campaigned on the fact they do it. I agree. <laughs> <laughs> if, you think about the, if you think about the Commonwealth Games... They can be run very successfully. Ron Walker is the chairman of the Commonwealth Games we ran in Melbourne. Yep. Ran a very successful Games. I was part of that committee. We didn't have all that much trouble funding it. It worked quite well. Sue will know particularly well, Sue Stanley, that as, as an athlete, you should know as a footballer too, each progression you make as you enter a sport is important to you. So when you're a junior, what you're doing is important. And eventually, if you're really good at it, you get to the top. But you need pathways... You can't come off the street as a young kid mm. and be the... It's unlikely. Very few people will come off the street as a kid and become to the top of the world. You need a pathway to go through. The Commonwealth Games provide an extremely useful pathway for young athletes to learn to live in teams, to learn about other sports and to do a whole host of things. And a lot of the Commonwealth Games sports are very practical sports that can be paid, played in countries without building 100,000... Stadium seating stadiums, they can play them in paddocks, they can do a whole host of things. And so what the government overlooked is this is part of an embryonic thing that leads to the top. We had uh, Steve Monaghetti in here last, last, week. last, last week. week and he said exactly that. He said, um, mind you, I don't like to put words in people's mouths, but we, that, that is the most, disc- that, that is uh, false electioneering, that, that stuff, what that, this government did. Uh, um, I want to tell you one thing. I want you to tell me anything. It's been fascinating, mate. I can't think of enough questions to ask you. I'd like to tell you about John Howard, because he deserves a big accolade. When I I was running the Sports Commission, or the Australian Sports Commission, it was when the Olympics were coming up and discussing a whole thing about the Olympics. Howard was very worried. Kim Beasley was the opposition leader. He wasn't interested in being involved with the Olympics. Howard was mildly interested, but said, you know, I wonder why we should do it so... There's a whole host of rooms in Parliament House in Canberra. I don't know whether you've ever been there, but they've got rooms everywhere, meeting rooms. So I got the researchers to actually go and search out for the 10 years preceding... It might have been from 1980 to... 85 to 95, I think. I did 80 to 90. To go and get me in England and in America and in Japan, all of the headlines front pages of stories where Australian athletes had excelled in any of those countries. So we had the Test cricketers winning the Ashes in England. We had the rugby team who could play well and were winning. And we had the golfers going back as far as Peter Thompson and then a whole host of others. We were our more famous friends. Greg Norman and others were winning the British Open. And then our tennis players were winning Wimbledon. Neil Fraser going back as far as him and a whole host of things. And then we were winning the Grand Slam, so we were winning in France and we were winning in America. 
And so I got all those pages replicated, basically. And at the same time, I asked them to get the same day, same year, get all the information they could find of Australian politicians who travelled overseas and the press coverage that they got. And I got one wall of these, one of these rooms in Carlton House and I put up all these posters that I had about the sportsmen and women. And on the other wall, on a very small bit of the other wall, I put the publicity that the politicians got. So I said to John Howard, you want to worry about what sport does for Australia? You want to think about whether you want to finance sport or your people in the house here? Here's the answer. Fantastic. And that's all John Howard, and John Howard was a great benefit. He was. He went to the sporting events, and you might remember, he always walked every morning. In his early days, he used to walk in street clothes. Later on, he always wore the Australian uniform. Yep. Either be cricket, whatever it was. And so... He, he actually bounced sport around the world. John Howard was fantastic. Fantastic. I actually had the great privilege of uh, walking a couple of times when he used to come down to Melbourne with John. So we used to go morning walks around, which was fantastic. But one thing that really, I'm a big advocate for ju- kids in sport and junior yeah. sports and things and having the Commonwealth as a stepping stone. I mean, you were elite and people say to me, you know, sport is like business and business is like sport. I mean, you've been successful in both, like sport and business. How much do you contribute... Was, was sport an important part of your yes. business career? Yes. Yep. I, had my first, I started riding when I was 13. I come from a, a cycling family, a Johnson family. Gordon Johnson yeah. was a world champion. Yep. Tassie, yep. his father, went to the Olympic Games yep. and sort of ran the Sun Tour, started the Sun Tour. So I came from sport. And when I started, I was absolutely hopeless. I started as a road rider. I was a fat kid and uh, I wasn't much good. And I remember once in one of these races... They, they, used, they used to put a prize at the halfway mark because if I could get to the halfway mark off a long handicap, I'd get a prize. And once I ran fourth, it must have been about 1952 or 53, and the guy said to me, oh, we're going to put this in the Sporting Globe, Peter, because this might be as good as... This might be as good as you ever get. get. <laughs> in the Sporting Globe. And, and I kept it. <laughs> How um, good is it? Now, uh, you started in, uh, there's a reason I'm asking this, you started in the pharmaceutical, you were a salesman or a rep Rep. for uh, Abbott's? I stopped, because I stopped racing, the Mm. night I stopped racing, I had to get a job, I needed Mm. a job, I'd sold my father's businesses. Didn't doctor any of the uh, supplements up into the... No, they didn't didn't know about supplements. No, that's right, so which is my question, I I get criticised this, and you will too, a lot for this. I reckon the greatest, one of the greatest cyclists of all time, perhaps the best, was Lance Armstrong, yeah. who won. And yet he was riddled with the stuff because he had testicular yeah. cancer and he took stuff to get back to where he was and then a bit further and people say, yeah, he's a drug cheat. Oh, I said, well, who wasn't? Uh, that's pretty ordinary. Uh, it was pretty bad Not a very time. good now, analogy of mine. I was heavily involved with the International Federation at that time and I was worried that they lowered the bar on Armstrong. They lowered it too early because we were investigating what was going on and what we needed to find was what was the source. Yep. Athletes, when athletes are losing form, you've got to watch athletes through their career. When they're gaining form, they're very easy to manage and they're very open and they're generally quite honest. Young athletes, whether they're footballers or whatever, gymnastics or whatever, they're always very honest people. They get corrupted with success. Yep. And they get corrupted, often driven by coaches 
who want the success much more than the athletes want success. Yeah. Athletes take success. They it's live wonderful their lives when vicariously through their charges. Yeah. Correct. And so if you're not careful and you don't watch it carefully, for sources from above keep pushing people into extremes and they can be quite easily led, particularly as they get a bit older or they get injured and they lose a bit of form, then people will look for assistance to maintain a standard. And so it's a complicated system. It would take a whole session on that very subject to cover it. Well, now, look, Peter Bartels, uh, you are just... Um, uh, you've gone from South Africa to Fosters to CUB, you've IXL, you've been in the Grand Prix, the cycling industry. Uh, you are a fantastic, um, articulate, learned person, man, we'll call you a man, and uh, the, so you're a remarkable person and uh, you're an absolute Australian icon and uh, I've, I have found, I'm sure people will find this fascinating about the big brands that Australia is responsible for and you're at the head of it and I really appreciate you coming in. I hope things going well for you now and you're uh, moving on because that's all we can do and I really appreciate you coming in, Peter Bartels. Thank you so much. Thanks, Sam. Happy birthday. Uh, happy Christmas. I'm open around the streets late at night. I'm worried because.